So, if you're just joining us, we're going through the book of Revelation, and we mentioned that it was written to the church of the first century who were experiencing persecution, and the Lord Jesus comes to John, reveals himself, and says, I want to give a revelation to the seven churches of Asia Minor. So, as we're learning how to read the Bible, we want to read it. First of all, what did it say to the people in the first century? How would they have read this? What comfort, correction, and instruction would they have looked for as they were reading the book of Revelation? And so, the first three chapters we said is, we're, and we've been through them, the letters to the churches, but beginning in chapter four, we enter into what we call an apocalyptic style of literature. It's a, it's a particular style of literature that has lots of visions and symbols, but apocalyptic literature in its background was written by God's people during a time of severe suffering to give the people of God encouragement to persevere and to show them that in the end, God is going to win and that their hope will be fulfilled and that they will be ultimately redeemed into the kingdom of God. So we mentioned that the, the Christian church has been interpreting and reading the book of Revelation throughout the last 2,000 years. We're not the first ones to pick it up and say, hey, let's, let's see what it means. And so as Christians have read the book of Re Revelation throughout history, and I know that for some of you, they're like, just tell me what it means. But you really can't do that. You have to go, listen, let's look at the different ways that people have interpreted this book. And, and I, I mentioned last week, and I'll just remind you that some people believe that this apocalyptic material is just a, an overview of history. So when John wrote this, when Jesus had just died and rose again, it's just covering history throughout its ages until Jesus comes back. Now, the difficulty with that is it's so subjective. How do I know whether this is, well, this particular locust stands for, you know, the 1500s when um, the Reformation happened. So, but that, that, it's not a real common view, but that's a view. And some of the great men of the past, you know, great theologians, Spurgeon or so forth, might have held something like that. The second view we said is called the preterist view, or the view, in essence, that most of what's going on in the book of Revelation was fulfilled in the first century. So all of these cataclysmic events aren't primarily talking about the whole world. They're talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in 70 AD, of which Jesus did predict this. Jesus did predict that in his generation, Jerusalem would be destroyed. Now, obviously, they would see many of these things as symbolic. The third view, and the one that probably many of you have been most exposed to, is called the futurist view. It's part of a, a broader scheme of how people have interpreted the Bible called dispensationalism. But this particular viewpoint is basically everything you read from Revelation 4 on primarily up to 19, is going to take place in a very brief period of time in the future. And that period of time is called the tribulation. And that tribulation is going to last for seven years. And so all the events that you read about, these, these symbols and so forth, are taking place during this seven-year period. Now, those who hold to that view, almost all of them believe that the church or Christians will be removed from the earth prior to these events. So in essence, this is kind of like we're just looking at what's going to happen on earth, but we're not going to be here, okay? 
And that's a very popular view. It was popularized particularly by men like C.I. Schofield in the early 1900s. There were Bible prophecy conferences, and there are lots of great godly teachers who hold this view. And there are some, some strong reasons why I think that it's a real possibility. However, there's another view that's called the idealist view. And this isn't anything new, but it simply says this. As we're reading these events and these images, do they have to only specifically have one particular reference? So as I mentioned last week, if it mentions a beast that's going to persecute Christians, don't worship him. Is it possible that the first century church saw in that beast that that has to be the emperor who's trying to kill us? The Middle Ages, the Protestants who are being persecuted during the Reformation thought it was the Pope. And is it possible that there is a future beast? That there, and the Bible's clear, there will be a coming man of lawlessness, a future Antichrist. But do we need to limit the reading of this book to simply saying, this is all for the future and we're not going to be here, okay? And again, Christians differ on that, even among people in the church here. So, and that's fine, because this isn't a major doctor where we're like, you're changing the gospel. But what I want us to think about as we're going through these six seals is there's a little bit of a broader thing to think about. If you read through the book, there are three sets of seven. They call them septets. Three sets of seven judgments. The first set of seven judgments is seven seals. And we've been seeing that. Jesus has a scroll and he's peeling off these seals off of the scroll, these wax seals, and there's seven judgments. When that gets done, as we'll continue to read the book, there's then going to be seven trumpets. And each time a trumpet sounds, there's going to be a series of judgments that are poured out. When that gets done, there are seven bowls, literal, well, I say bowls that are poured out on the earth that are expressions of God's judgment. Now, one of the things that we have to bear in mind is futurists generally read this book as chronological. In other words, okay, this whole period, the seven-year period, is going to go like this. There's going to be seven seals, and when that's done, then there's going to be seven trumpets, and when that's done, then there's going to be seven bowls, okay? And that's possible. But it's also quite possible that much like a movie, that you'll circle around and go back and re-look at things. So, for example, in Revelation 10, the Lord tells John, you must prophesy again concerning kings and nations and so forth. And his, I think what, what, the way I see these seven sets of judgments is they're not chronological, this happens, then this happens, then these seven happen, but rather each of the seven is cycling through a period of time that ends, and then the next seven is retelling it from a different perspective and the next set is retelling it from a different perspective and and we'll see that today and I'll explain why I hold that but what we have in these two seals today last week we saw the four horsemen of the apocalypse and the primary two views that I focused on are the, the the futurist view would say hey these things the white horse the red horse that that hasn't happened yet that's going to happen after the rapture okay the other view is that these things are taking place now, but they will increasingly get worse, and there will be catastrophic, climactic disasters on planet Earth, and greater wars, and greater famines, and greater persecution as we get closer to the end of the age. 
So when we come now, we're going to look at the fourth seal. Now, this fourth seal that we just read, or I'm sorry, the fifth seal, rather, look at verse 9. It is a vision of the souls of those who have been slain because of the word of God. Look at verse 9, and because of the testimony which they had maintained. Now, the futurist view is simply this. These are all the, all the people who get killed during the tribulation. Okay? So, who are these people? Well, during that seven-year period, there's going to be a whole lot of people killed, and they're all going to be up in heaven going, how long, O oh Lord, how long till you get the bad guys? Okay? Nothing wrong with that. It's quite possible. However, it is just as possible that this is not limited to simply a small group of people in the future who have been martyred. What if Abel is there? Because martyrdom does not begin in the tribulation. People have been killing believers since the beginning. In fact, ironically, in the beginning of the Bible, men sin and they hide from God. But instead of getting better, right, Cain gets bitter. So in the beginning, men hide from God when they sin. And then because of their corrupt disposition, they not only hide from God, then they start hurting people who follow God. So right in the beginning of the Bible, we have wicked Cain killing his brother. And God says, the blood of your brother is crying out for the earth. So history begins with a sense that, wait a minute, things are wrong down here on earth, and one day God's going to make them right. And so as we read about these martyrs, while I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable saying, yeah, this, 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 is, this is possibly those who are slain during the tribulation. I don't think that it has to be limited to that. Because right now on planet Earth, today, people will be killed for their Christian faith. And as I mentioned, in the last hundred years, there have been more people killed for their Christian faith than in all 1900 years. So there is a severity to persecution right now on planet Earth that because we're in our little American bubble and, and, and we often only watch American news, doesn't even come across our radar very often. But I want to remind, some of you are familiar with it, some of you have no idea, but look up online Voice of the Martyrs. And you can get their magazine. And you can, I just got our, our recent copy last night. I started reading about some of the persecutions about a man who's, who would go back into China from North Korea. You, they trade, you can leave North Korea, go into China. And his, he had some loved ones in China who had become believers, and they're asking him to read the Bible. And eventually, he read the Bible and began to smuggle Bibles back into North Korea. But obviously, that's not going to end well if you're caught. So how, how should I look at this passage? Well, let, let's see what they're saying. It says, they were slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony that they had maintained. Can I tell you this? I promise you they were not Christians who said, we just witnessed by our life. We never say anything about Jesus, we just witnessed by our life. No one will ever be killed for just witnessing by their life. They were willing to witness by their lips. And when push came to shove, being asked to bow down and worship the emperor, 
or bow down to the gods of this world and renounce Christ. They said, no, I'd rather die. And herein, all of us need to search our own hearts and say, why would I think that that could, would, should never happen to me? Jesus himself said, do not fear those who can kill your body. He said, fear God who can kill your body and then put your soul in hell. Whoever is ashamed of me in this world, I will be ashamed of him in the world to come. And so we all have to do some soul searching and say, hey, would I be willing if they came to my door and told me to renounce Christ, would I be willing to say, no, I, I, I'll accept death. Now we can all be Peter and go, Jesus, I got your back. You can count on me. Or we can humbly say, dear God, have mercy on me. If this ever happens, please fill me with courage and power so that as Paul said in Philippians 1, his earnest prayer and hope was that in nothing he would be put to shame, that Christ would be exalted in his body, whether by life or by death. And so Jesus taught us, pray that you might have courage to persevere and stand before the Son of Man. So they're asking God, how long? Now you'll notice he says, I saw under the altar. What altar? Is there an altar up in heaven where people get stuffed under? Now it's symbolic, but probably here this is a reference to the altar of incense. In the altar of incense on the Day of Atonement, they would not only take blood into the Holy of Holies, but they would pour out the blood of that bull at the altar of incense inside the tabernacle. And so here are these martyrs who have poured out their blood for Jesus symbolically at the altar of incense, and they're simply asking God, how long, O Lord? Now notice that they don't just call him Lord, but they call him holy and true. In other words, they appeal to the fact that, that there's a just, holy, righteous God who does things with equity and fairness and righteousness. When are, when are these people going to pay for what they've done? Now on the one hand, we look at that and we go, wait a minute, that's not what Jesus would do. Jesus said, just, just pray for Pray for your persecutors. Pray, Father, forgive them. Well, I want to remind you that the Bible doesn't just teach us, pray, Father, forgive them. We should pray, Father, forgive them. But there is a sense in Scripture in which we do wait for God. Vengeance is His, and He will repay. And we'll find later in the book that the saints are rejoicing when God avenges his people. In chapter 16, the angel says, righteous are you, O holy one, because you judge these things. They poured out the blood of the saints, and you have given them blood to drink, and they deserve it. Wait, what? Later in the book, in chapter 19, hallelujah, O Lord, that you have vindicated and brought judgment to this wicked fallen earth. So on the one hand, we should pray, God, have mercy on these people who persecute Christians. But on the other hand, you know what Paul told the Thessalonians? Hang in there because God's going to comfort you and he is going to afflict those who afflicted you when the Lord Jesus comes with flaming fire. He's going to deal retribution on those who didn't obey the gospel and they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. So he's sort of saying, hang in there. God's going to comfort you and he's going to afflict them. Right now they're giving you a beating and you pray for mercy on them. 
but don't think that God one day won't give them a beating. And so the Lord, notice it says, he gave them robes. And you're like, what in the world? Well, as we said, when a person dies, they're out of their body and their soul is with the Lord. So right now, there's a great company of Christians up in heaven. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, the spirits of just men made perfect. The church of God in heaven, the ransomed, the redeemed. I don't think that there's a, a special area where all of the saints who we love that are in heaven, you're over here, but then over there, if you were a martyr, now you're, you're over here. All of our unsaved friends, if, if they didn't come to Christ, the Bible teaches that their souls are in hell. But all who know Christ are with Christ. So John's simply giving us this vision to remind us that throughout history and in the present for these first century Christians and now and in the future tribulation, people will die for Christ. And you're going, huh, why? And this, this is where we come to the deep waters of God's divine mysterious decrees. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth. And the Bible actually says that all of our days are written out before we were ever born. And God has already determined not only when we'll die, but how we'll die. Look what he says in verse 11. He says to these saints, rest a little while longer until the number of your fellow servants and your brethren who were to be killed, even as they have been, shall be completed also. And you sit there and go, please God, I hope I'm not in that diary. I hope, I hope my name's not in there. But if it is, that's all right. Because the most important thing is our names are written in the book of life. So when Martin Luther wrote that great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, he said to his people, God's people, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, and his kingdom is forever. And then he goes on to sing of that great day when the Lord Jesus will come and this world that's full of devils, one little word will slay them. So maybe this is only future saints who are slain during the tribulation, or maybe it's also symbolizing all who have died for the cause of Christ. But now let's look at the sixth seal. The sixth seal has all of these cataclysmic natural disasters. Seven things happen, okay? And the interesting thing about these things that happen in nature is that, as one commentary said, there's a quarry of Old Testament texts that predicted this, okay? But when Jesus was on earth, now this is really important, when Jesus was on earth, he said there is coming a great tribulation, okay? There is coming a great tribulation. And then he said this, and, and you can write this down. It's Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 and 30. Now just listen, because what I'm going to suggest is as, 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 you, as you hear these events in Matthew 24, and then we read Revelation chapter 6, you tell me, is this talking about the same thing? Okay, Revelation, or Matthew 24, Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, not during, but after, the sun will be darkened, 
The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky. Okay? Jesus said, after the tribulation, that's what's going to happen. Immediately preceding my return, these cataclysmic events. Now, let's read Revelation 6, verse 12. And I looked, when he broke the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. Hmm. The moon became like blood. Hmm. The stars of the sky fell to the earth. Hmm. Verse 14, the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and every island were moved out of their places. Hmm. Remember, so there's almost the exact same events, right? But in addition, in Matthew, Jesus says, then they'll see him coming and they will mourn. Here it says, verse 15, the kings of the earth, the great men, the commanders, and the rich men, and the strong, every slave and free man, hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains, fall on us. Hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, who is able to stand? I can't read that. This is just me. You don't have to agree with me. But I can't read that without going, that sure looks to me like the second coming. That sure looks to me like the exact same thing that Jesus described in Matthew 24. I mean, it's, it's, it's striking how similar they are. You go, well, what's the big deal? Yeah, so what if that's the, the second coming? Well, the problem with the futurist view is they don't believe that. This can't be the second coming. This has to be some other events during the tribulation. And the great day of God's wrath is um, just talking about how the tribulation is going to unfold for seven years. Whereas many, like myself, would say, no, this is the second coming. It's, it's almost identical. Why can't it be the second coming? Well, because it's, it's, it's in the middle of the tribulation. Well, it depends. How are you reading this book? Are you reading this book chronologically that says, well, it can't be the second coming because you've got to have seven more trumpets and seven more bowls before the second coming. So this has to be something else. Well, you could, or you could say, is this simply giving us an overview of history the four apocalypse of the uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse the fact that christians will die there is a coming great tribulation in which many more will die and then the lord returns and as we continue into the book we'll reread these cycles okay so i'm not trying to confuse you here but what i want you to understand is this that if you read this whole section chapter 6 through 19 as futuristic, right? This, 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 we're not, we're not, we're, this is going to be in the future. And by the way, 
this um, isn't the second coming. There's nothing wrong with that, okay? But at least understand, others would say, that's clearly the coming of Christ. And therefore, as I read the book of Revelation, I don't have to read it as though he doesn't tell about the end until the end, okay? So when I get done the seven trumpets in the middle of the book, it says, and now the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Wait, that, he, that can't be. That's the second coming. That can't be till Revelation 19. So what I want you to see is simply as you're reading the book, ask yourself, do I have to read this chronologically? This, then this. Or is this in, apop in apocalyptic literature simply saying, this is what's going on behind the scenes while we're looking at all the economic and cosmic, you know, pandemic disasters or whatever here on earth, in heaven, God is, is unfolding history according to his purpose, and he's allowing saints to die, and he will avenge their blood. In fact, some have suggested that that fifth seal is the plea, God, how long are you going to let this go on? And the sixth seal is the answer, until I come back and open up a can of my wrath. So, couple things to think about. I would like to believe for certain that we won't be here, right? And probably many of you have been told for certain, we won't be here, so don't worry about this. But I would prefer to say it's possible maybe we won't be here, but what I want to do quickly is just outline some of the main arguments so that you can think about them, okay? The first argument, and not in any order, why we've been told that we won't be here is there's no... So, so what I want you to see is neither view, whether we're going to go through this or if this is in the future, neither view has the corner on the truth. But if you've only been told one side, like if you only watch CNN or you only watch Fox News, you're only getting told one side, right? So... So if you've only been told we're not going to be here and then you hear reasons, well, at least I want to expose you to the counter possible responses to that. So let me go through them very quickly. It'll only take a moment. Number one, frequently people will say this. There's no mention of the church from Revelation 4 through 19. Not one time. Yet in chapters 1 through 3, the great word ecclesia, church, 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 church. There's no mention of the church. As soon as you get to chapter 5, church is gone. And I go, okay, good observation. However, there are frequent mentions to the saints and to the followers of the Lamb. So just because it doesn't use the term church is an absolute proof we're not going to be there. It might, but that would be like some, somebody saying, he always talks about his kids, 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 kids. There's no more references to kids. He's talking about his children, 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 children. Therefore, you get it? So I'm not saying, oh, we're definitely going to be in the tribulation. But just because it doesn't use the word church doesn't mean we're not going to be there. Okay, number two. One of the most frequent arguments for why we won't go through the tribulation is from 1 Thessalonians where it says, God hasn't destined us for wrath. Jesus is going to deliver us from the wrath to come. And then this assumption is made. The phrase wrath is a reference to the tribulation. 
Therefore, since God hasn't destined us for wrath, then we're not going to be here. And I go, hmm, valid point. However, counterpoint, what does wrath usually mean in the Bible? Hell. When Jesus said, flee from the wrath to come, nobody was thinking, he's talking about that tribulation when God's going to put a beat down on the people on earth. In Romans chapter 5, when Paul says, being justified by his blood, we're saved from the wrath of God, I don't think Paul in one second was gone. I mean the wrath of the tribulation. So all I'm saying again is, maybe we won't go through the tribulation because God hasn't destined us for wrath, but that's only if wrath definitely just means, hell, or just means the tribulation. But you could understand how others could say, well, that doesn't prove it because maybe God hasn't destined us for hell. That's all it's saying. Do one more. You'll frequently hear this. God would not beat up on his bride. God would not allow a massive slaughter of his people. Why would he beat up on his bride? How many millions of his bride have already been killed? Right? How many people of God are being beat up on right now? So, so sometimes we go, yeah, but not in such massive proportion. Granted. But, but the premise, God would not allow his bride to undergo all of these severe things. I'm going, well, he has allowed. And, 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 and even if we were to say, well, he wouldn't do it to his bride. And even if we said, well, these martyrs are all the people of, of, of God in, in, in the tribulation who got beat up on. Would you say, okay, so God loves his bride and he wouldn't let them go through that. But those poor people have to get a beat down because they're not his bride. They're still his people, but they're not his bride. So again, that's where I go, at least let's just think this through. So you go, Pastor Tom, what are you trying to do, scare me? No, what I want you to do is think through this. I hope that the pre-trib view is true and that we will be taken up before the tribulation because there is a coming tribulation and a coming antichrist. I think Jesus made that very clear. But I want to prepare the people of God to say, let's not get disillusioned with God if indeed we do go through the tribulation. Let's not look up to heaven and say, you didn't keep your word, God. You told me I wasn't going to be here. And God says, I didn't tell you that. So, so the idea here of just saying, okay, as I read these passages, was the first century church reading them like this? Don't worry, you're not going to be here. Or were they being called to know that, hey, you're going to go through hard times. Debbie Downer, right? This is going to be bad. Lots of people are going to die. But the call wasn't, don't worry, you're not going to be there. The call was, persevere. Blessed are those who persevere. Blessed are those who overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And they love, Revelation 12, and they love not their lives unto death. You're going, that's a very different Christianity from what I've been presented by some of our very popular writers in current days. I thought God wanted me to be happy and healthy and wealthy and my best life now. That's not what the Bible teaches. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. So, let's close with some thoughts. You go, well, what do I do with this as I think about people who have died for Christ? Okay, number one, let's remember, pray for the persecuted church. The Bible says in Hebrews 13, remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them. 
bring it to the forefront of our mind more often that people all over the world are being persecuted. I try to particularly remember the, the church in Syria and Lebanon since we've ministered to them and talk to some of our people who have been there and hear the horrendous stories of what those people are going through. But in North Korea and China and Africa, uh, right now I want you to pray for Brother Azar, you know, our Pakistani pastor. He's in a country right now where he's in extraordinary danger, but he's preaching 11 times in 15 days, going into some of the most dangerous places for Christians. Pakistan itself is only 2% Christian. So pray for him. Pray for the persecuted church. Number two, ready for this? Pray for our country and our leadership and for the people of God in this country. Here's why. 1 Timothy 2 says this. Pray for all who are in authority, your kings in authority, so that Christians can lead a godly life in tranquility. So we pray for those in leadership. Doesn't matter whether you like who's in leadership, we pray for them and we pray that the church, don't pray for persecution. People are like, let's have a good persecution. The Bible doesn't say pray for persecution. It says pray that we may lead tranquil lives in godliness and dignity, meaning pray that we're not persecuted, but while we're praying that the people of God are not persecuted in America, like the Canadian pastor who recently was arrested, right? We also pray for the people of God in America to live lives of godliness, not ungodliness. And then Paul goes on in that prayer, he says, and not only pray for those in authority, but pray for all men because God desires all men to be saved. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, pray that more and more people will come to Christ. Third, so I pray for the persecuted church. I pray for people in leadership. Third, I pray for personal perseverance. God, help me. Help me. No matter come hell or high water, help me to persevere in my faith and my obedience. Broke my heart yesterday to have a, a loved one say to me about a pastor who's very dear to us. She said, Pastor, would you pray about this? He's out of the ministry now. And this is what he said. I've given up on that. A pastor who's being asked to pray for somebody goes, I've given up on that. Pray for personal perseverance. Pray that for your kids. Doesn't matter if, if I was the president of the youth group and I memorized a hundred verses. Jesus said, it's he that perseveres to the end who will be saved. Now, the comfort, as Benjamin frequently teaches us, if you're a believer, you're going to persevere because he will keep us. Jesus will hold us fast. He will continue to work in us. But it doesn't mean that we should be careless. And so this morning, we can rejoice. The Lamb has already overcome. He has the keys of death and Hades. I used to be terrified to die. And if you are not a Christian, you should be terrified to die because this verse says, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. And it doesn't matter whether people go, I don't believe in hell. My God wouldn't put anyone in hell. That doesn't make it any less true or real. And so if you're here today, I encourage you, come to Jesus. Either you come to the Lamb who was slain and surrender, or you're going to be slain by the lamb who was slain for you. It doesn't make sense to resist him. It makes sense to run to him 
And so let's take great comfort as we pray for one another in what may very well be the last days. And I'd like to hope that we will be taken up. Lord Jesus, come quickly. But if we're not, let's not be disillusioned and let's read this book and say, Lord, I know you're coming. Until then, help me to be faithful till you come. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word. It's true. And we all need to be Bereans. We need to go back and think and search the scriptures. I pray that no one will leave this morning confused or unsettled unless they're not a Christian. And then we want them to come and, and, and give their lives to Christ. We'd love to talk to you about that. But for those of us who are your people, we pray today for the persecuted church. Have mercy, protect them, strengthen them, help them to be bold even unto death. We pray for our country, that this country will not persecute Christians, but that there will be a revival of godliness among Christians, and that we could see many people saved as we hold forth boldly the word of the gospel. And Lord, I pray for my own soul, that Christ will be exalted in my body, that I would not be a coward at that last moment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.